now the cleanest hour in podcasting with your host, Ralph Peterson. This is the Housekeepers Podcast. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Housekeepers Podcast. Dare I say the cleanest hour in podcasting. I am very happy to have once again Brian McWilliams back on the show. Thank you so much for agreeing to do the show again. <laughs> Glad to be here. <laughs> the first time we did the show, it went really well. I had a great time, but then I had such a microphone issue that when I went back and listened to it, I was like, oh, we can't air that. <laughs> so I appreciate you coming back on. And oh, my pleasure. I'm going to basically ask you all the same questions as we did before, because I thought it was so fun and so relevant. And apparently you and I are dueling on who had the worst week. I think I might have won. <laughs> <laughs> I've been having, I've had a lot, I've had a challenging five days. And so I really appreciate, if nothing else, just to talk about something else. We're just yep. going to talk about you. <laughs> <laughs> I just like rather oh, just like just inhale, exhale. Brian McWilliams owns and operates Cumberland Valley Cleaning over in Pennsylvania, and he hasn't been doing it his whole life, which is always the case. Nobody ever goes to their guidance counselor in ninth grade and goes, you know what I want to do? I want to work in cleaning. <laughs> <laughs> and you go to that skills assessment book and you look up page 897. There it is. Hey, uh, cleaning is for you, my friend. <laughs> yeah, that, that would be a rarity. In fact, yeah. they'd probably be escorted out of the school if somebody would say that. <laughs> <laughs> I got to tell you that I really didn't know that it was a profession. I didn't know cleaning yeah. was a profession. I mean, it was a job. One of my first jobs was cleaning, but I didn't know it was a profession. I certainly didn't know there was a lot of money in this business. There is. I'm with you, yeah. <laughs> I had no. No clue either, to be no honest. No idea. So let's go back. You're in, is it Carlisle? Is that where you are right now? Carlisle, Carlisle Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania. It's, it's about 22 miles outside of Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. It's in the central part of the state. Carlisle is a transportation hub. There's a number of interstates that run through Carlisle and then run through Harrisburg. They all interconnect. The biggest growing area in the metropolitan Harrisburg area. It's one from 137th like 173,000 last census. I believe it's right around the 240 mark right now. Oh, wow. It's grown phenomenal. Yeah. That sounds really great. You know, it's funny when I look at a map of Pennsylvania, it looks like the state of interstates. Like mm. everything looks like a main road. Yeah. So when you're like, it's a main, it's off a main road. I'm like, that wouldn't be enough of a descriptor. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think I read somewhere where it's, it has a, the third most road networks in the United States. There it is. So that gives you, I guess, I don't know, maybe Texas and California are the biggest. I don't know, but yeah. they rank that as third. That's interesting. I, yeah. I, I have been, just because we're talking about roads, I have been secretly, not so much of a secret now, but secretly doing some research on stop signs. Mm-hmm. Only because I live in a neighborhood. My neighborhood's maybe from one end to the other, a quarter mile. Okay. And there's 11 stop signs. 11. <laughs> Which, as you can imagine, at this point, they're not even considered. Like, people don't even, I mean, yeah. if they take their foot off the gas, you're lucky, you know, I mean, because there's just so many of them. And I'm so into the weeds. I feel like I'm, you know, like sometimes you can get into a YouTube trap. Where mm-hmm. you look up one thing and all of a sudden a day goes by and you're, <laughs> yeah. you've done nothing. You're still in your pajamas. That's what I feel like when I'm doing this stop sign research. I'm like, how do you get a stop sign? What is a stop sign for? What are the uses of stop signs? Mm-hmm. When did they come in existence? How many are there? <laughs> Just, <laughs> it's nuts. 
It's right in my wheelhouse because it's all about management. So stop mm-hmm. signs are only about management. It's simply it. managing the flow of traffic, the speed of traffic. They're very useful. And I wonder if they can also be, there could be too many of them and or they can be used for nefarious, meaning like they're used simply as a speed trap or a place to get revenue for ticket generation. Mm-hmm. And I found a lot of theories on people thinking that, but no actual, nobody's writing it down. Yes, there is a application for if you want to increase tickets. <laughs> I would like a sign here so we can increase it. No, I haven't found that exactly, but. <laughs> I think a lot of that's depend on what town or municipality you're in. For example, around here, there's municipalities that they strictly, they hammer moving violations and speed traps. There's other departments that concentrate on crime prevention. It just depends. Mm-hmm. Like, depends what the department you're going through, basically. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you just used a turn of phrase that is what got me a little bit curious. Uh, speed trap. Mm-hmm. Why is it a trap? What can we do instead of trapping people? What kind of a is it? You know how a lot of times the speed limit in housekeepers podcast, not to be confused with road construction. <laughs> uh, that's a different podcast. <laughs> but you always see the jump from 65 miles an hour to 45 mm-hmm. or 55 to 30. Why can't it be 40, 35? 30. Is it because there's too many signs? I mean, <laughs> generally the jump can be big and in a lot of areas. Pennsylvania is fairly good with that. And most departments will give you a 10 mile an hour cushion unless it's through a school zone or something or mm-hmm. a construction zone. But yeah, the drop off isn't quite as heavy. I, as I travel, I know exactly what you're saying. You can come through a town where the speed limit's 45 or 55, and then you're down to a 25 within three seconds. With no warning. Yeah, no warning. Yeah, and you just wonder why there isn't black marks on the street there from everybody pounding on their brakes. <laughs> Tell me about yourself. Where did you grow up? Where did you uh, go to high school? All that stuff. I grew up in actually Western Pennsylvania, right in Pittsburgh. Oh. My dad worked for the city of Pittsburgh. At the time when I was growing up, I think I mentioned this before, Pittsburgh was really a smoggy city. Health-wise, it was a tough city to live in. And my dad got emphysema, and my brother got a job out in Harrisburg. Because at the time, Pittsburgh, the economy was starting to tank quite a bit. The jobs in the mills were gone. Even the city of Pittsburgh was laying off periodically. My dad got, got laid off a couple times and got called back into work. But as a result, he got emphysema. And then we end up, that's how we end up moving towards the Harrisburg, Pennsylvania area. And I grew up, went through, you know, went to school in Mechanicsburg right around fifth grade. I kind of stayed in that area till I graduated college. And then I moved down to Maryland as a police officer. And then I eventually came back. And That's right. Talk about that for a second. How did you actually kind of had like a couple of bouts with being a police officer, right? Mm-hmm. You didn't just go right into it. Talk about that exactly. Yeah, well, basically, when I went to college here, I, w- I did some security-related stuff while I went to college and out here in Harrisburg. I was a bouncer for a little bit. I was a loss prevention agent and kind of got my feet a little bit wet in the field. And then I tried to stay in the Harrisburg area. At the time, the departments weren't really big. City of Harrisburg was any big department. They'd only hire like one person at a time. And I'd be maybe fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth on the list. I did really good, but you might as well be 500. And I tried to stay in the area for a year. I realized the opportunities in Maryland, they were just endless. That state at the time and going back now to 1987 was just booming. And the departments were so short. I went down there, I applied for, I don't know, maybe four or five departments. 
and four or five I went with the first department right? that called me. Yeah. But then like within days, the other departments called mm -hmm. and I had honestly four or five opportunities in a matter of a few months that, you know, staying in the Harrisburg area for a whole year, I wasn't able to get. And that's I, basically how I wound up down in Maryland. I like the lesson here is if you don't have opportunity where you are, it's not that there is an opportunity. There's just right. no opportunity where you are. Right. And so, of course, at this stage, there's so many people, so many jobs and not enough people to fill them. There's basically opportunity wherever you are at this point. <laughs> there's so much <laughs> where there's not opportunity. It's, it's, it's the same here in, you know, in the Carlisle area. The warehouse jobs are going anywhere between 18 to $23 an hour plus hiring bonuses just to load freight, the basics of warehouse work that when I was in college, I would have killed for. Yeah. I tried I, to get a warehouse job in college and I couldn't. They were all filled. Really? Yeah. That's a, it's a weird dynamic that we're living mm -hmm. in. Cause I don't, it's either not sustainable and we're going to have like this big bubble crash or they're just going to keep printing money. And so $16 is going to be the same as $3. Yeah. And, you know, you'll have to have a wheelbarrow full to buy a pack of cigarettes, you know, which yeah. is what happened in Germany, World War II. I mean, they're, they just kept printing so much currency to make up for all of these expenses. They're like, well, we'll just keep printing it. Okay, cool. It's a tragic move. It just, yeah. I mean, anybody that you and I are probably not the greatest economists in the world, but if we recognize that, how can an economist, how can people in government not recognize that? You know what I mean? It's crazy. I, I, <laughs> I and you know even you some of these countries like Venezuela and some of these other countries are actually at one point very successful country. Venezuela, it's a great uh when I was, you know, in the early nineties, I was in college and you know, it's where you're starting to get aware of the when you're in college, you start getting a global you know awareness mm -hmm. at all. And I remember just reading all about Venezuela and how they were like the number one exporter of oil. They were a cultural art center and now it's like a third world country down there it's devastated and you know it's funny as i talked about him before my economics professor in college is a guy by the name of michael maloka who after my semester went and ran for president in africa one of the countries in africa i think oh, it was in wow. nigeria yeah so he was a real smart mm -hmm. guy and we were talking about the idea that all these factories have left america and he just put the question out there, you know, because we're all like, you know, um, it makes more sense to do business in other countries and to run factories in other countries because of the price of everything. And he said, what if the American government simply didn't want to have manufacturing? And, you know, so they just made it impossible to do business here or they made an agreement with these other countries to get them jobs by bringing the manufacturing there. Maybe it wasn't an accident. You know, maybe it wasn't this. It's a I, I probably don't disagree, though, but look what happened when COVID hit and how hard it was to get N95 masks and, and basically any masks. At the time, they weren't here. Look at the microchips for the cars. Like, it's crazy to, to rely on one country for one critical source of goods. Just, Agreed. I guess something like clothes and things like that's okay, but you can't outsource everything and give everything away. It's insanity. It really is. Although, let me give a little plug for a company called Origin. Origin USA in Maine. They have their whole claim to fame is dirt to shirt. Everything is in America. So the cotton is grown in America. Mm -hmm. It's milled in America. It's sewn in America. You know, like dirt to shirt. I think that's pretty a great tagline. Pretty cool. Origin Maine. Get some American made, American grown denim. <laughs> shirts boots i think they do it all yeah but you're right i mean and now where are we going to be right like gotta 
especially with the critical stuff when it comes to medicine, medication, yeah. medical supplies. Yeah. It's just smart. Like it just, I mean, you just don't have to have everything done overseas. It's okay to have trade relationships and things like that, but there's certain products you just don't do that with. Yeah. I mean, you just don't. Yeah, I agree. And we want other countries to be productive and successful sure. and to have good products and services and to provide. I would love the idea of providing services to foreign countries. And I love the idea of getting services and products from mm -hmm. other countries. I have no problem with any of that. I think that's a great idea. I like to buy things from Pennsylvania. I'm in New York. I like to buy things from Connecticut. You know what mm -hmm. I mean? Yeah, Maybe me it's too. the same thing. We're all God's children here, right, Brian? I mean, yep. can we agree? <laughs> exactly. Some of us are, I guess, better than others. Poor well, <laughs> so you said your dad uh, got emphysema. My dad mm -hmm. got emphysema too. When he found out he only had, he had said that they gave him an eight to 10 year life sentence. That sounds life. about right. Yeah. He died in 10. So it took him 10 years to die. And it was a real big challenge. It was the same kind of thing with your dad. It was. Uh, it was a little bit of double whammy. He had eventually got cancer too. My whole family it was back when, you know, cigarettes were like my whole family smoked. I was yeah, the only one in my family that never smoked. And I, I don't know why I just never liked it. Mm. But, you know, in the end, it was partially my dad's demise was my mom's demise and my brother's. It just it nailed them all. And that helped contribute to it. But it was it was a bad last three years, two years for my dad for for a number of things that yeah that being a big part of it that's funny i grew up i grew up with cigarettes too like my parents would smoke at the t kitchen table after dinner mm -hmm. you know use their plate as an ashtray i mean it's just yeah. it was wild like i remember like i don't remember much of it but i remember as a kid like my aunts and uncles and everybody would be over and would have 15 20 people in the house on a saturday or sunday besides having some beers and stuff they're around the table, but you could literally inside the house. It looked like the outside of the house in the city of Pittsburgh it looked like it was full of smoke. Like the inside of the house was full of smoke, you know, and there's kids running around and that era, nobody gave a, a thought about it. You know, now, I don't know, somebody would probably be calling the cops if they saw a house with that much smoke in it. <laughs> you know what I mean? The neighbors would be calling the police. But it was just accepted back then. Yeah, I, crazy. I still walk into some places where there's, you know, two, three, four, five people smoking at one mm -hmm. time. And I'm like, I don't even know how you can even stand in there. I don't. Yeah, I don't. I don't know how I did it. You don't know how you did it being in there um, in Pennsylvania. Most pubs or bars, they don't have smoking, but there are some. Last one I was in, I don't know, maybe 10 years ago, I couldn't take it. Like I was literally in there for an hour and I had to get out. Like it was, I couldn't take it anymore. I just traveled to Vermont a few weeks ago. I was okay. up there to do a seminar. I did a two day workshop, in a nursing <coughs> home leadership workshop. And I had booked a hotel and it's a, I'm not going to say the hotel, but it was a reputable mm -hmm. hotel. Like one that I've actually stayed in before. It was a great hotel. I mean, it's fine, you know. It's not an inexpensive hotel. It's like, it's like $170 a night or whatever. Right? So it's There's nothing the cheap up there, yeah. It's, it's on the <laughs> expensive side, I think. And I get up there and the front lobby looks like the front lobby always had. And I check in and then I walk around the corner. I'm just walking down the hall. And I think to myself, I thought Vermont, it was illegal to smoke in a hotel because it smelled just like cigarette smoke. Wow. And I'm like, what is happening here? Like, I thought it was illegal. So I was like, that's weird. Like, are there doors? Yeah. Is there a smoking room? Like, I don't understand. And then I opened the door to the room and I was hit by a blinding smell of BO. And I'm like, what? <laughs> what is going on here? I shut the door and I backed away, you know? And I go down to the, to the front lobby and apparently 
the hotel was turned into um, temporary housing for people who were homeless or, you know, having problems getting housing oh, during COVID. Yeah. And he said, you know, no, you're not allowed to smoke. And, you know, but we have a real tough time managing it right now. And that hotel is just ruined. It's just ruined. So I was like, oh, I'm going to, I'm going to go stay somewhere else. He's like, yeah, yeah, I understand. <laughs> oh my God. After the show, you have to tell me. Yeah, well, I'll have to tell probably you not anywhere near Burlington. I don't want to know, but if it's near Burlington, tell me after the show. <laughs> <laughs> are you going to Burlington? Are you? I, that's where my daughter's at. Yeah. It's funny you mentioned it. Like the pricing's up there is so expensive. I'm like, and this time I'm spending like, you know, five days up there instead of just picking her up or taking her back. And I'm like, UVM, UVM, UVM. That's right. Yeah. And these rooms are like 200 some bucks a night. So I'm on one of these sites and I'm like, I see this trailer. Well, I look at the pictures first. This place is right on the water. It says $149 a night. Wow. Wow. That's cheap. Now look in it. it, it, It's an okay trailer, but really it's got a nice deck going out to the water. It goes right on the water. There's canoes and kayaks and there's a grill out there. It's a gorgeous view. Those are nice pictures. Yeah. (laughs) I'm thinking, well, you know what? I took a leap of faith and it's got a fairly decent sized bedroom. So I'm I'm staying in a trailer for five days. Oh, so you haven't even seen it It's 40 minutes out of Burlington, but heck. But you haven't seen it yet. I haven't seen it yet. I'm Mm -hmm. taking a leap of faith. Well, let me say this. If it's 40 minutes north of Burlington, mm -hmm. you're probably okay. Yeah. That's what I'm thinking. Yeah, because that's right on Lake Champlain. You're probably up in the Milton area. If it's 40 minutes south, you may be closer to Rutland. Mm -hmm. That's the opposite of where you want to go. Yeah. (laughs) No, that's that's where I was. I was in Rutland. That's where the hotel was was in Rutland. So it was uh, but you know, Middlebury is right there. Middlebury is a nice, nice community. I've been through it. I've never stayed. I've been through it. Yeah. And your daughter is in college at UVM, which is yep. impressive because that's a tough, tough school to get into. It is. It's, yeah. What is she studying? Uh, microbiology. Mm-hmm. You know, what's funny is we Pitt was a big choice for her and us. Not just besides close. It's a good school. Mm-hmm. But there was more financial support. and It was more affordable for my daughter to go out of state wow. and go to University of Vermont than it was to stay in state. Wow. So, it's crazy. You don't think of that stuff when you're looking at schools. You never, you never would never think that. But that's really how she went. Besides, like in the university was a big choice, but you know the cost had something to do with it too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I completely understand. And it's funny that you know I was just listening to this show about it was actually about Harvard, and it mm-hmm. was saying how you have to have a certain IQ, like a very high IQ, in just to get into Harvard. Mm-hmm. But once you get into Harvard, they don't make you any smarter. <laughs> That's true. Yeah, you're right. It's not like they take a 110 and they make you into a 130. Like that's a, you want to impress right. me. That's a great school. What yeah. they do is they surround yourself with a bunch of 130s. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, the argument can be made whether or not that's a good learning opportunity or not. Right. Right. So it's always yeah. interesting. Yeah, it's, 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 you look at all the schools and some of them have the same beliefs. Some of them don't, but they all operate kind of differently. Like they have different philosophies different beliefs on on grading and things like that. It's like, it's just so scattered and random sometimes. 
I know. Oh, I just read that in California, they were having their high school graduation rate was like the lowest in the country. Mm-hmm. And they just turned it around like big time. And what they did was they stopped having a final exam. Yeah. <laughs> that'll, that'll do it. That'll do it. Don't test your knowledge and you'll you'll succeed. <laughs> I mean, that's crazy. <laughs> That's the funniest thing I've ever heard. And I wish was I was when I was in school. <laughs> I wish I wasn't talking about a state in the United States. I wish I was talking about some other country, right? I wish I was talking about some other place yeah. where that, you know, because that seems silly unless it's here, because then it sounds dangerous, is what yeah, it sounds like. That's it very sounds dangerous. Sad. And, all right. So, uh, <laughs> you know, the challenge with having you on the show again is we've kind of already talked yeah. about everything. And I and I gotta be mindful that a lot of people haven't heard your story. So I, I want to make sure I'm getting to it. How did you go from law enforcement? Well, you kind of went from Maryland back mm-hmm. to Pennsylvania, right? Because I did. I, I moved back. My mom was sick. At that point, I had a number of years in Maryland. So I took an opportunity to move back to Pennsylvania. And then I worked for a campus police department. And then I got into insurance fraud investigation, which I disliked. I hated it. And through that process, I actually got a job with the state of Pennsylvania, which I'm still actually doing at this point. And so I do like protection details and things like that for a government body in the state of Pennsylvania. And that's what I do. It's not really law enforcement. It's, it can be considered quasi-law enforcement. Yeah, like private contracting. Yeah, it's a state job. But it's, it's basically provide protection, basically, is what it is. And that's what I do. I'll be doing that probably for another five years and I'll retire again. What didn't you like about the fraud prevention abuse stuff? What was that all about? It was travel. A lot of it was insurance fraud. A number of it worked as comp. It was the travel. Like I would come into the office on Monday and then say, hey, you have to go to Columbus, Ohio. I'd go to Columbus, Ohio. I'd come back and they're like, hey, you got to go to Jersey. And then on top of that, there I was doing, I'm not going to name the company, but I was doing executive protection details, hostile terminations. So I had workloads to do. I had work to do and I had these caseloads to do. And because I'm traveling, I'm doing all this. So the caseloads were building up and it just got to the point where I just got so disgusted with it. And then the travel, you never knew where you were going. You didn't know how to prepare for one day or the next. And my daughter was really young at the time. Mm-hmm. And I had, after a couple of years, I had made the decision, this is just too much. And basically, that's how I wound up with the, in the state of Pennsylvania. You know, uh, workers' comp is the second largest expense in business. It is, yeah. The first expense, largest expense, of course, is payroll. Mm-hmm. And then workers' comp is number two. I can so. vouch for that. Uh, yeah, I know that uh, it could be quite a challenge to, or quite necessary to have people investigate workers' comp claims. Yeah, it's it's amazing. Like we did work a large hospital somewhere in Pennsylvania. It was amazing the number of cases just from that location, you know, it was well into the teens. Mm-hmm. And it was just amazing. Yeah, it's a big expense. There's a little bit of a flip side to that too, though, when you're pretty sure that they're actually injured, sometimes the employers won't believe you. They just, <laughs> they just simply refuse to believe you because... Yeah. Because most times there is a scamming going on. Not it, every time. Yeah, not every time. You tell them you believe this is really legitimate. Mm-hmm. Yeah, sometimes they'll believe you. Sometimes they won't. They'll still spend the money to send you out anyway. Mm-hmm. So 
This wasn't my cup of tea. I don't regret leaving. Yeah. When you were a police officer in Maryland, mm -hmm. what was that like exactly? Did you enjoy that? Did you... I did for a while. It got it to sounds the like point. a terrible job, to be honest. It is. As we all know, it's gotten a lot worse. Mm -hmm. It was it wasn't the best when I did it, but it's probably fifty times worse now, I would imagine. It burns you out going to the same houses, trying to do conflict resolution and doesn't succeed. It's just like a hamster in a wheel. It just keeps going over and over and over again. And and you hope and pray that it doesn't have a major horrible outcome in the end. The thing that gets you through is, is able to do good things for good people. And that gives you a great source of joy. And that's kind of what keeps you going. That's the rarity. I mean, that doesn't happen daily. But when it does happen, that's kind of what keeps you going. And that's the enjoyable part of it. Yeah. So how did you find your way into cleaning then? Like, I mean, you go from law enforcement to insurance <laughs> claims to fighting. I always want to start my own business. And I wanted to do it at the point when I was younger and my daughter, we were just about ready to have a daughter. At that point, and even to this day, health insurance is so important. And honestly, I, I was looking in to start my own business and I basically talked myself out of it because of the chance of failure. Didn't have the guts to do it. And, you know, again, I didn't want my daughter and my wife on the hook for any kind of major, you know, medical issues. And so I just kind of put it on the back burner. I'd look at some businesses again I might be interested in, put it on the back burner. And I maybe that four to 15, 12, 13 years later, I just, you know, I'm going to find something that I can do while I'm still working full time, build this out to when I maybe retire in five or six years and I'll have something to jump into. And that's how I started doing research on what businesses I might be interested in. And one of the things I looked into probably three or four times was, was cleaning business. I, I researched stuff to nauseam, probably, probably more than I should. And I just researched the heck out of this for, I don't know, six months. And I made the decision, I'm going to start this small and I'm going to start doing residential. And so that's how I initially started was I was doing residential cleaning. Kind of went from one account to two Word of mouth kind of spread. I built that up a little bit. I think at one point I was maybe at six or seven accounts and they were going really well. And I hired my first cleaning tech, my first cleaning technician. And as luck would have it, a couple people moved. <laughs> one person said, oh, this, the budget's a little more than I thought. And so they canceled out. So I had seven accounts. I went down, I think four. And now I got a cleaning person who's counting on seven accounts. I'm like, man, this is frustrating. Well, I went back to work at it again. I got a couple more accounts. I think How I went to your accounts. I actually, believe it or not, when I started out, I was with Home Advisor. And I know that comes with a whole mixed bag, and I'm on board with the mixed bag part of it. But it got me started. It got my feet on the ground and got me some accounts. And Home Advisor is that website where if you're looking for somebody, you're looking for a plumber, you're looking for something, right. just type it into the Home Advisor and search bar, and they'll somebody will come up that's they kind of quasi-vetted. Exactly. Yeah. And vetted, maybe not. Or I said quasi. Ah, yes, quasi yeah, exactly. Yeah. But it worked for me. It got me up and running. And so, you know, I eventually got my accounts back up to eight or not. And the same thing happened. And I'm like thinking there's got to be a better way to do this. And then I looked into the commercial side of it. And again, I researched that at nausea and probably way too long. And I'm like, well, I'm going to try to get into the commercial side. That, that's tough to crack when you start. But I was fortunate. 
I knew someone who, who gave me a break. Again, I went with a couple services like HomeVisor and Thumbtack. They worked out okay. You know, built me up to maybe three or four commercial accounts. And as I'm doing this, there's a couple more residential accounts. One person lost her job. The other person's been, I mean, at this point, I'm down to four or five. So I developed enough commercial accounts to take my cleaning tech and have her do some of those and some of the residentials. And I'm thinking to myself, you know what, if I wait long enough, after about a year, I probably won't have any residential accounts because they'll eventually phase themselves out. And that's basically what happened. And at that point, I went down to zero residential accounts, maybe eight months down, eight months later, got myself up to, I think, maybe seven, eight business commercial accounts at the time. And so I made my decision at that point. I'm strictly sticking with commercial. Wow. And and that's and I slowly built it up from eight and hired a few more employees, built it up. Even right now, I'm not super big. I think I have 26 accounts. It's so I'm not, I'm not a, like a huge player in the area or anything. Mm-hmm. But for what I'm doing now, it's manageable and I can focus on it. Um, and I'm blessed at my full time job. I get a lot of time off. I mean, I get a ton of time off. That's the only reason that can help me run this cleaning business without that. It would be really difficult. So I'm blessed I have kind of the best of both worlds. And it having a backup source of income, having a backup source of health insurance, it made the decision easier to really start a business. And that's why I think people that start out with nothing in a business, I mean, that's gutsy. And I support them 100%. That Do makes- you have any, let's just wheel it back 15 years, 12 years, however long it took you to, when you mm-hmm. first started thinking about it, do you ever wish you did start earlier? Do you ever wish you like, mm, you know, every for, day for me, once I made the leap and mm-hmm. didn't die, this is important. Right? Right. <laughs> so I made the leap and I didn't die. Yeah. I really was like, oh, why was I so scared of this? I know. And, and the reason I'm even bringing it up is because there's somebody listening right now who's like, you know what? I've been thinking about my own business and maybe going out on my own. And I've been thinking about it for three months, four months, eight years. And I still haven't done it with peace and love. Jump. You're not going to die. Yeah. Right. No, I agree. And I'm kind of glad you brought that up. Kind of glad you did. Kind of glad you did. (laughs) Because (laughs) I really do. I say this like, especially, you know, every year at the end when, you know, I I do my taxes and everything. And I always try to take a look at my, you know, at my growth, like at least every three months. And there almost isn't a day in the month that goes by. I wish I would have done it much, 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 much earlier, you know, and I wish I wouldn't have talked myself out of it. And I wished, you know, some other people wouldn't have talked me out of it because I'd have, I'd have been planted much, you know, much better off, I think, than I am now. But it was the course I took. It wasn't, you know, everybody, everybody takes their own course, but I tell you, it's worth the risk. And I wish I would have took that risk 15, 20 years ago. Yeah, me too. One of my biggest challenges, I think my whole life is always just being a little too scared of Mm -hmm. the unknown. And really, when we're talking about business, talking about jobs, we're talking about, you know, stuff like that. It's not going to kill you to go follow your dreams. And quite frankly, when I did leave my company, I was really trying, you know, you're torn because you were like, all right, you know, don't cause irreversible damage to Mm -hmm. your past employer so that you could go back. At the same time, I kind of felt like I needed to really sever the bridge so that it forced me out, you know, not that I did anything terrible, but I'm, you know, it's just that there's so many jobs. Mm -hmm that you can find another job. See, that's the thing. I, and and I, at the time, like when, when you're thinking this all out, you don't think that. 
Mm-hmm. Like you, you don't. That's I think that's the mistake people make. Like the mistake I made is you don't, you don't think that there's there's probably always something out there. Even when the economy was tough, there was always something out there. Um, and yeah, I, I've got to say if, if 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 somebody wants to take the leap of faith and and start their own cleaning business or any business, if you as long as you look into it. And it looks like it can be profitable, you know, two, three, four years down the road. I think you owe it to yourself to do it because, yeah. you know, again, this is this is 15, 20 years later. I'm still thinking about it. I'm still thinking <laughs> about it. What if And I'm in a good position? But, you know, it's it, it's it's frustrating. So, I, you know, I'm with you. Like, I wish I'd done it much longer too, much long ago. Definitely. Me too. And not only that, but also. As I progress in my business, and for all intent and purpose, I'm a I'm an educator. So I, mm-hmm. I'm in I'm in training. I'm in consulting. I'm in education, and I love it. But my business has gone a million different directions since I started it. I'm I'm mm-hmm. nowhere even near what I even thought when I first started. I'm way way different than where I was, and I think that the reason I bring that up is because. I, I wish, you know, again, if I could go back, I would have started where I am. But the truth is, of course, I wouldn't, I didn't even know where I am existed. Yeah, that's true. Right? Yeah. And so, and the reason I bring that up is because let's talk about the train, starting with the residential as opposed to the commercial mm-hmm. and then working your way to commercial. How do you feel about that? Would, what would you recommend if you were somebody who's like, I would like to start a cleaning company? Would you recommend the same path or would you say, commercials really where it's at you know i would say this the thing with commercial it it it, to me it's much better but that's one thing i think i would still do all over again you'd still do the residential first because because for one it's a it's a learning and training experience Mm. um you hone your skills while you're doing that um secondly the accounts are easier to get so it was nice for me because I had made, uh, you know, a pretty good profit on the residentials that gave me a, a, a base to go off of, to go into commercial. So when I went into the commercial accounts, I wasn't starting with zero money. I had some money saved up to buy equipment or whatever mm-hmm. I needed. Um, plus, you know, it's it as frustrating as doing the residentials accounts are sometimes it's just a great learning experience. Like doing a residential account is much harder than doing most, not all, but most commercial accounts. So you really learn a lot about cleaning doing a residential. And really it kind of, it kind of builds character because there's always something coming up that you have to learn and adjust from. And I think it's a good idea to start residential, to build a business. That's what you want to do. You want to build your business. I think a good philosophy in that is, Start residential, build some business, get some money saved up. Why you're still doing residential, try to concentrate a little bit on commercial. And if you only have two or three commercial accounts in maybe a year, well, that's two or three you didn't have before. And then you can start growing that commercial account, but you still have some residential accounts, that money coming in as well. Just a suggestion, but if, if yeah. I was to do it all over again, I would still do the same path. As frustrating as it was, I just mm-hmm. learned so much from doing residentials. 
You know, you, you talked a little bit about how to build character. Mm-hmm. And we both have college age kids. And we both kind of feel like, I think that we both feel like the trials and tribulations of owning your trials and tribulations of life are what kind of build character, right? Can you exactly. agree on that? But what is it in business? Why is character so important in business? And what do you mean exactly by building character when it comes to owning your own business? I think the character part of it is sometimes you have to make mistakes and sometimes you have to get smacked in the face with the mistakes a little bit. I think that builds a lot of character. And in the residential side, customers are not all, but they're extremely picky and finicky. And it, it makes you make a decision is, well, either I've done everything I can, and that's when you have to take a stand and say, this is the best I can do, I can't do any better. Or you learn from that, and maybe you actually need to get better. And that part of it builds character too. I think another part of it that builds character is that you're really, you're busting your ass. Like you're working hard. So when you get to the point where you get 25, 28 commercial accounts as a boss, as an owner, you don't think you're too good to do them because you've actually done it before. And it just leads, I guess, to a sense of pride that you're not too good for your employees, you're not too good to do something. And that time, by the time you even start the commercial side of it, you've had so many interactions with the customer. Like probably each customer you're talking to either weekly or bi-weekly, whether you've done a great job or whether something needs improvement. And you need to hear that. Like you can't, you can't just sit there and get, get accolades all day because you'll buy your own hype because nobody's perfect. So I think working with residential customers is, is really a big dose of reality. It, it, I like it, that. The, it, focus, it makes you focus basically. Yeah. Cause in a commercial building space, nobody lives there. And in a residential, everybody lives there. So yeah. I look at my commercial space differently than I look at my home space. So mm-hmm. that's, that's a really great point. And yeah. I think you're right that it's a weird, painful thing to go through. But at the end of the day, I know for me, the one thing that's helped me the most in my business and in my life is the ability to get over myself. Yeah, I'm not exactly. so important. I'm not so right. smart. I'm not so you know good at things. And being willing to not only hear that, but then go, okay, how can I go on? That's the character building yeah. for me that I think sucks. Yeah, <laughs> it's not fun. It's not yeah. that I want to do. Right. But it definitely, you know. And it's hard. Like on rare occasions, you get bad news. Like, you know, none of us are perfect. And on the rare occasions, you get that phone call and they say, look, this this just sucked this week. Like it it, it hurts. But yeah. But also it makes you focus and go down to that account and correct it immediately and make sure it doesn't happen again. And and the client, I think the clients appreciate that. If there's an issue, you focus on that issue and get rid of it and be done with it. And I think, not to go on a tangent, but I think that's where some of the smaller, medium-sized companies, I think that's their strength. If your location's in Baltimore, Maryland, and you're calling out to a regional office in Texas, you don't have that turnaround. You don't have that connection with, with your client. Agreed. I used to compete against this company So I worked for a national cleaning company and Mm -hmm. there was a regional cleaning company that was in the same area that I worked in. And so we'd compete a lot. And I remember overhearing them do a sales pitch once. And it was kind of like very interesting to overhear somebody else's sales pitch. Mm -hmm. And their sales pitch was that they, the operators are also the owners. And so if there's an issue, you're not calling somebody who you hope has buy-in. 
You're calling the owner of the company. And that's interesting because if you couple that with when you get a national company, you get very big. One of the biggest challenges we have is how do you get people to work as if they own your company? And the answer is simply you can't. Right. It's very rare to find somebody who's going to treat your company as the same as you do. Right. Right. Which is why their sales pitch was so good. They're like, you can go with them. Yeah. But at midnight, you're hoping somebody who's already may not be the, you know, the most committed to the company. You're hoping they answer your call. That's funny. That's exactly my sales pitch. That's almost my sales pitch to a T. And and it's true. Like my turnaround time is if it's not ours, it's within that day. Yeah. And because I don't want it. I don't want the negative vibes. I don't want the. I don't, everybody makes mistakes, but it's how you correct them is the big difference. Mm -hmm. So I just don't want that looming over my head. Yeah, no question. It's that whole point of correcting. Mm -hmm. I worked, I was in a, doing a contract service and I work in healthcare. So I do nursing homes and hospitals and that kind of thing. And anytime we would do a stripping and refinishing project, it was always at night or on a weekend. And if you're doing it where there are offices, nine out of 10 times, the offices are not going to be open. Right. And there's going to be a little gap under the door. And if you're not careful, if you're not smart, if you're not proactive in making sure nothing gets under that door, you're asking for a world of hurt. And I remember I'd sold this home and I went there and everything's great and they're doing really well and they really appreciate us. And, you know, we're really doing a great job. And then we do a stripping or refinishing job. And I don't know it because I'm the regional director. It takes me weeks mm-hmm. before I get there. And when I get there, the first thing the administrator does when he sees me is like, hey, come with me. And he opens the director of nursing's office, which if you're going to make a mistake, that's the office you don't want to do right. it in. <laughs> right? She's the in charge or he, yep. in this case, it was she, in charge of all the nursing department, You know, which is only the most important department in a nursing home, most right. important department in a hospital or senior care. Exactly. In, in, in healthcare, yep. nursing it's the most important. Open the DON's office and it's carpeted in the front half of the carpet it's covered in stripper. And I was like, okay, I see it. I'm like, okay, all right. They must not have seen it. You know, my workers, they didn't see it. That's why they didn't get it. That's in my head, right? I'm like, they right. didn't see it. I'll go ahead and get it. I go and I'm like, hey, we have to get that cleaned up to the manager. Absolutely. We'll get right on it. Two weeks later, the administrator calls and says, listen, I just hired a cleaning company to come in and do that carpet because your company's not doing it. Now imagine that. They hired us, a cleaning company, to clean their facility. We make a mistake, soil their carpet. And because they can't get us to clean it, they hire another cleaning company. And so when we get the notice that they're canceling... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Everyone's like, why are they canceling? I'm like, oh, you <laughs> Oh, man. See, that's the thing in this business. Like, you can do things 98% perfect. You make one mistake, mm-hmm. you know, but you can go to the grocery store and they're out of half the groceries. Nobody's complaining. They'll go back two weeks later to the same grocery store. <laughs> but you can't do that in the cleaning business, you know? Yeah. It's like playing sports, like, you know, like the ninth inning, they want you to hit a home run. Like you almost got to hit a home run like all the time. It's, it's yeah, that's that. I guess that's probably one of the, it's not a major drawback, but if there's a drawback of, of this business, you have to be successful almost hundred percent of the time. You know? the, per- the perception. And, you know, I mean, I am only speaking of my perception, obviously, mm-hmm. but the perception seems to be that cleaning is a very easy, which means to make a mistake in cleaning is you must be really dumb. 
Right. Like if you make a mistake in cleaning, you must be, be the worst of the worst. I mean, how do you even get up in the morning kind of thing? And then if you don't correct the mistake quickly, mm-hmm. now you're not dumb. You're negligent. Yep. You're evil. You're just yep. here for the money. You know, and and of course, from the company point of view, none of that is true. Exactly. None of that is all we want to do is have a good report. All we want right. to do is do a good job. Unfortunately, uh, not all of our staff, you know. If everyone was like you and I, Brian, they'd all own their own cleaning company. <laughs> now there's truth to that. That I, you know, again, I think that's if there is a drawback is, you know, you got to hammer it all the time. And the, you're right. It's the mental perception of people in this line of work. I don't know. Maybe, you know, maybe with this labor shortage, that's kind of changing things a little bit. Maybe people realize that, you know, this is a service you need. And the fact that people are showing up and working, maybe that'll go a long way in changing. But I agree with you. There's a perception there that really shouldn't be there, but it is. I was talking to somebody today. I think he's a lawyer. He has a law office. Anyway, he was saying that the challenge that they're having right now with the labor shortage, because the labor shortage is affecting them as well, Mm -hmm. is he has seen a noticeable... It's so funny the way that what I'm going to say, because it's interesting because there's so many different ways to look at it, but this is the way he looks at it. There is a noticeable attitude change with the current workforce in his office because in his view, they know they can't get fired because there's so little staff that they know that they'll be able to do anything and get away with it. And so they're just taking advantage. And as I heard him say that, I immediately just thought that I don't think that's true. I wonder, I bet they are having a little bit more of an attitude. I bet they Mm -hmm. are, you know, being maybe short with each other, but I bet it's more likely has to do with something like the workloads increasing. You know, you have to look around and go, and how is it possible that people aren't, you know, being made to go to work and it's so unfair. I bet it's more of that than, oh, well, uh, there's no way they're going to hire fire us now. So let's go in and just act like a bunch of tomfoolery maybe maybe that's the answer i don't know i'm with you partly i think there's probably a number of people who are coming to work they might be a little angry that they're coming to work spending their gas money spending time away from home but there's other people that aren't doing that or don't have to do that so i think a lot of that comes from that aspect of it but I will say this, I did a proposal for a fairly large warehouse in Carlisle. I didn't get that, but he had told me, this was during peak season, like in November, during Christmas season, they needed 75 people shift. They were only running about 38 to 40 people a shift. A number of those employees were calling off and they, he said they were calling off because they knew he wouldn't fire. And so they had 38 people running a shift. They'd be lucky to have 30 or 29. And those those folks working in the warehouse knew that. I think it's a little bit of both. Here's here's the challenge I have with that. And again, all of this is completely subjective. And I, and I oh, yeah. know that. I know that. But I... I'm trying to think back to like when I was a young man working, I never called off. And the reason I never called off, it's not because I love my job. It's not because I was afraid of losing my job. 
is because I needed the money. Yeah. That's it. The only reason I worked was because I needed the money. And so right. when I hear people like out of 70 people, 35 of them are calling off. I'm sure I, I think there's 35 people who don't need the money. Yeah. They yeah. are getting paid so much an hour that they need very little hours. Yeah. They're, a 20 hour shift is now the same equal money as two years ago yeah. of a 40 hour shift. Pretty, and I don't think people are taking that into account. Yeah. And I think for me, and again, I'm a consultant, I'm an educator. I don't have employees where I'm doing this, but it might be time to simply go to part-time. If you have somebody, if Mary is only working on average two and a half, three days a week and calling out the other two and a half, three days, how about we just make her two, three days? What? Yeah. Just go, hey, Mary, clearly three days is enough for you. Let's do three days with you. Get somebody else for three days because at $22 an hour, three days a week is plenty. Yeah, I agree. You've done much more research in this than I have. Wasn't there a study done by the government like back in the 1950s, where they they were predicting this, like they were predicting the study was done because they thought there wouldn't be enough jobs for the amount of people. So they've done a study of what it would be like to pay extra money and work less hours and put less strain on the system because there just was too many employees for too little jobs. And this is kind of like what it's sounding like now. Now, I understand there's too many jobs, not enough employees, but it's kind of the same concept. And they were looking at reducing in this study 40-hour work week down to, I don't know, like 28 hours. Do you know why 40 hours is the number of hours in a work week? I really, I don't know. Because industry did a study, not government. Industry right. did a study and found anything over 40s, the production rate went down. Yeah, so, I, I agree with that, yeah. So it's the yeah. maximum amount of hours where the employee, eight hours a day, basically, is about the amount of time that you can get a person to be productive for a long time. If the answer was six hours, we'd have 32 hours a week or 35 hours a week. That's kind of how it is. It's not... 30 hours a week, I guess, <laughs> my math. It doesn't have anything to do with the government. It had to do with private industry trying to figure out the best case. And then yeah. there were some companies, you know, they're like, oh, we're going to run nine hour shifts and 10 hour shifts. And then, this, you know, then became in the, we should have a law that regulates this because there's been proven evidence that shows that eight hours a day is the maximum amount that anybody's focused on and there's safety concerns. And so legislation comes in and they're signing laws and unions come in and they're mm-hmm. anything over eight is overtime. And, you know, cause you have to pay extra if you want them to take more of a risk. And like, that's kind of how it all happened. But I think one of the two things that really stand out for me is one, the the idea Peter Drucker wrote about this. And so did um, uh, Taylor was his Francis Taylor. He was like one of the early writers about management as well Mm in the 20s and 30s. And then Peter Drucker came along and kind of blew the lid off of our understanding of of management, especially then. He writes about how the number one challenge of the employers, factory owners in the 1930s during the Great Recession was people were calling out. Mm -hmm. They couldn't get staff. People wouldn't work. You know, they have people were seemingly, it seems like people were more content with standing in a soup line than they were going to work. The soup line meant you got no choice of how much soup you got or what kind of soup, they were fine. Like, I don't care. I'm just going to stay here. And I think that that's the same case right now. I think there are people who are just, and there's a lot of them, just, they'd be happy with doing nothing. Yeah, I agree. And on the other side of that, over the last few years, I know we're over time here, but I know the last few years, there's been a lot of talk about maybe there should be a universal wage given, like everybody should get a couple hundred dollars. And the argument has been because technology is 
going to take over for labor. And there's so many technology technological advances that before you know it, there won't be any jobs. And yeah. it's never made sense to me. It sounds so ridiculous because- That was part um, of this government study. They were, they were exactly, technology. Yeah, yeah. Yep. That thinking is a closed system thinking as if there yeah. is no growth. Yeah. <laughs> like there is no ideas. I remember, I can't remember the person's name, but somebody in, in the year 1900 or, yeah, the year 1900 declared everything that has been invented or could be invented it has been invented. That was the year 1900. Here it is, 2021. <laughs> and, you know, there are inventions that are going to knock your socks off and you oh, haven't yeah. even heard of them yet. And they've already, you know what I mean? Like it's, it's crazy. So I think it's expanding. I don't think it's, I think we're always going to have a problem with, we work in cleaning. I've worked in cleaning nearly my entire life. And the one constant I've always had is I've always been short-staffed. Always. Mm-hmm. This yeah. isn't new. I've always right. been short-staffed. I've always been trying to figure out how to get people to choose me instead of McDonald's. Always, because I pay the same. I've always paid the same. Now McDonald's is paying more than me, which makes it even more of a challenge. But you know, we've always paid the same. We've always been entry level jobs. We've always been minimum wage. We've always been, you know, low skill. You don't need to have a lot of job experience to work in cleaning, you know, Mm -hmm. first uniform, first idea, you know, learning how to run a time clock, that kind of thing. Right. It's always been my business. Yeah. Now that. I just have to, I think that there's really should be some more discussion around the idea or maybe even just the acceptance that the reason people are calling out has little to do with you and your business and more to do with their ability to live off of less. No, I agree. And, you know, you couple that with, you know, people moving back in with their family. So there's less overhead, there's less rent. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. Like people just, you know, not only, I don't think not only is money not as important to them as I don't think a lot of people now, I don't think they care about self growth or even some self pride. Like they're happy, you know, based on years of being hammered in educational system, they think it's okay just to, you know, just not to want anything or want to do anything. Like it's, it's, I think it's a whole social structure to be honest with you, but. I agree. I just met a young lady who was so proud to announce that she just got her first management job. She's been Mm -hmm. working in retail for like 10 years and she finally got a job where she's now an assistant in a retail shop and she's very excited. And so I was, I'm excited too. I mean, you're speaking my language and you're like, Hey, I will be in charge. I love everything about you. Even if you're not going to be good at it, I, anybody who just says they're willing. And so I'm talking, I'm like, you know, so you should maybe read this book or this other book. And I wrote a book on management. I think everybody should be reading and she goes, ah, I'm not a reader. And I just had to pause for a minute. I go, okay, do you want to be good at your job? Do you, I mean, do you want to make this a career? She's like, yeah, yeah. I said, you need to become a reader. All right. You cannot be in charge of others and stay the same where you are now. It is, yeah. It is, you you have to evolve. Rule number one in any type of leadership role, start reading. And yep. you ain't got to read books at a time. Read one page at a time. Yep. Read a paragraph. Take a walk. Read another paragraph. Listen to an audio book. Listen to podcasts. You know, oh, yeah. if you want to be in charge, peace and love. Start getting an education. It's all on you. You've got to start doing it. Yeah, and then I think that's another thing too. With less of a workforce, anybody's. I think people have initiative. I think it's going to create an opportunity. Where before, if you had initiative, initiative doesn't always create opportunity. Because there might be a backlog on, on mm-hmm. people who are, you know, just as qualified waiting in line. Mm-hmm. I think if there is a silver lining to this, if you have any kind of initiative or a good quality work drive with you, that it could create opportunity for you. If you have the ability to get to work on time mm-hmm. 
and stay there. You're ahead of so many yeah. people. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, so yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you so much once again for coming on. I My really pleasure. appreciate it. And, I, you know, I could talk to you all day. It's really fun. And I'm sorry we didn't talk an awful lot about cleaning industry and housekeeping. <laughs> and <laughs> that's the ch- listen. It was still a good, fun conversation. Good, still talk Enjoy. about theory and business and and hoping. You know, and I think one of the biggest things that we did talk about today is if you have been thinking about joining or going out on your own and starting your own business, whether it's part time or full time or just on weekends or any kind of a side hustle, take it from Brian and I. Start now. Don't wait. You do not need to wait. There's everybody will give you a job if you fail, if it doesn't work out, but do it and put every single waking moment of your life into it. I get up in the morning thinking about my business. I go to bed thinking about Mm -hmm. my business. I spend my lunch hour thinking about my business and I'm not over here unhappy. I love it. I love it. It's well worth the effort. It it is is worth your effort. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you once again, Brian McWilliams over there. Hey, by the way, you're hiring, you're taking on contracts. How do people get a hold of you? Let me ask you that question. You can call me directly at my direct line, 717-385-7734. Wait, wait, say it it again. Say it again. 717-317-385-7734. And you can reach me on my website. It gets a direct link to my email, cumulantvalleycleaning.com. Or you can email me, cvalley at cvclean.com. I'm on Facebook, LinkedIn. So I have my business pretty much in all the social media sites as well. Don't update them as much as I wished I would. but <laughs> Well, I just put it out there. If you're Thank looking you. for work or if you need a, clean, yeah, a commercial cleaner, call Brian. His number's in the chat. I will put all his contact information in the show notes as well. Thank you so much for being on once again, Brian. I really appreciate it. Brian McWilliams, Ralph Peterson, Housekeepers Podcast. That's it. The Housekeepers Podcast. Thank you so much for tuning into today's show. Keep in mind the best way to ensure that you never miss an episode of the Housekeepers Podcast is by subscribing to the show and following us on social media. For those of you who are more visually stimulated, you can always watch us record the show live each week on LinkedIn, Facebook, and YouTube. In fact, we post all of our videos on YouTube, so make sure you are subscribing to our YouTube channel. If you love the show and you want to help us out, please consider writing a review and sharing the show with all your friends and families and colleagues. And if you are looking for more information about today's guest, all of their contact information and the links to their website are in the show's notes. That's it. Until next time, this has been the cleanest hour in podcasting. I am Ralph Peterson, and I'll see you later.